probably about eight years ago he came and and he's talking about his schools and we went ahead and and, and were able to take up an offering and and provide it for one of the schools. He's been in Senegal faithful to the call of God. Uh, when Brian, when I think of him, I think of one who is faithful to the call. I don't want to share too much of your testimony, Brian, but I value you. I value the work of God that he's accomplishing in you. And so I'm excited to hear the word that he's bringing to our church, the word that God has placed on your heart. So, Brian, it's it's all yours. Do you want a headset or do you want a handheld? Thank you very much, Pastor. It is always a joy to visit you and to share what God is doing in Senegal and to minister from the word as well. And... You guys have done so much for what God is doing around the world in general, but especially for what God is doing in Senegal. A lot of times when people find out I'm a missionary, they want to know what I do on the field. And the short answer, unless I have a whole, like, two hours to explain like I do this morning, I just say I do the same thing in Senegal that you guys do right here in the United States as you go about your daily activities. I make the situation where God does what only God can do. It's not about digging wells or building, uh, building buildings or schools or, or planting churches or training new pastors and leaders for the church in different parts of Africa. It comes down to making the situation where God is God, where God is glorified and God does what only he can do. And every last one of us does that, whether you work at Walmart, whether you're in high school or grade school, as you go about your daily activities, wherever you live and work. Uh, I don't see a clock in here. I'm just trying to avoid a hostage situation later. (laughs) One of my favorite stories of God doing something only he can do. And Senegal is a Muslim country. I should probably explain that first. It's about 97% Muslim. And all of our plans and all of our efforts and all the things we've done and buildings we've built, all of that really doesn't come to any consequence in reaching Muslims and planting the church in a Muslim land until God does something only he can do. One man called me on Saturday and said, my car was stolen. And I said, you know what, tomorrow morning is Sunday, and at church, the Christians in town, all like eight of us, we get together and we pray for all the needs we've seen in town. We prayed for, and I said, we're going to pray for your car to come back to you. And he said, oh, cars don't ever come back once they're stolen, because where we are in Senegal, we're like right on the border, and if you cross the border, you go into another country. He said, that car is not even in the same country as we are anymore. I said to myself, he's probably right, but since I said we're going to pray, we're going to pray for him. So the next day at church, we prayed, and as we're getting done with church, like an hour later or so, my cell phone rings. And I answer the phone, and he says to me, the police just found my car. I said, that's really amazing. He said, in fact, it was just down the road from my house. It ran out of gas. And I thought, I totally should have thought of that. I know him. He never has more than about 15 cents worth of gas. Every time he goes somewhere, he goes to the gas station first. And then he says, I wish I knew you back when they stole my motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, this is just one of a long line of Muslims that have come and asked us for prayer. 
ask for us to pray in the name of Jesus for God to do something for them. Now, a little more backstory. I uh, was actually born in Ainsworth and grew up in Bassett and Pender before I went to the mission field uh, about 26 years ago now. And right when we got to Senegal, we realized right away you can't do anything unless you speak the local language. And French is used a lot there. Our kids went to school in French there. Uh, Wolof really is the language of heart. When people get together, life happens in Wolof. And Wolof is borrowed kind of a lot from Arabic in some ways. And Wolof is basically an unwritten language. You can't learn it in a classroom setting. It doesn't have an official alphabet. There's no agreed upon, you know, grammar or way to write it or anything. And so really for my first two years in Senegal, I just watched people. And every morning I went down to this tiny one-room shop. It was probably only about 10 feet by 10 feet and had a counter down the middle of it and shelves in the back. And they sold candles and, and rice and fish and matches and all kinds of stuff, basic household supplies. And I just watched people. Every time I heard something and I no- thought I knew what it meant, I spelled it out phonetically in my notebook. And I filled up notebook after notebook doing this, and I'd, I'd wake up early in the morning, and I'd think all morning, what does it mean? What, what, how does all of this fit together? I did this for almost two years before I witnessed to somebody for the first time in the Wolof language. Are you guys ready for this? Pro- you may remember this story once I started. In Wolof, the word for sin and the word for nose are just about the same word, only separated by the letter N. And Wolof has like seven forms of the letter N by my count. So I told this victim of mine, the Bible says God loves everyone, but he can't stand their nose. (laughs) And the problem is everybody is born with a nose. I said Jesus was born without a nose. He's like, is that how they knew he was special? I said, yes, he went his whole life. He never had a nose. And if you believe in Jesus, God will take away your nose so you can have a relationship with him. I really want you guys to remember to pray for your missionaries wherever we serve around the world. But you know, that was just the beginning. At that point in time, there were just maybe a few hundred Christians in Senegal, and they were all down way at the very southern part of Senegal, while I worked way up at the very north, northern part of Senegal. And 25 years ago, you could drive hour after hour, town after town after town, through some of the most desolate desert on the planet. And in all of these places, no known Christian after town after town. But then again, God began to do what only God can do. We ran an English center for about seven years. We got to know a lot of people teaching adults how to speak English. It turns out you can't make a certain rank in the Senegalese military unless you've studied English. So we had a lot of people in uniform want to come study, a lot of police officers as well. But finally, after we'd been doing this for six or seven years, the God, God opened the door that I think was what he was leading us for leading us towards all along, and that was to start elementary schools. And these schools are Christian elementary schools because the teachers are Senegalese Christians, and most of them themselves grew up in Muslim homes, came to know the Lord in their early adult years, and then now they serve as school teachers for us, alongside us, I should say. 
and were allowed to open and close the school day in prayer in the name of Jesus. And the Senegalese law actually says you can teach moral instruction in school and use a religious text as long as it's really old. They never thought anybody would use the Bible. And the law says really old because all the different things that Muslims fight about are relatively recent in the history of their religion. So if it's past a certain date, it's more foundational things that they agree on better amongst themselves. So for the first five or ten minutes, the kids come in and have a Bible lesson. In fact, our first school that we started, we had those Betty Luke and flannel graph things. I don't know how many of you guys remember Betty Luke. We had boxes of those. I don't even know how many of those we had. Finally, we have too many schools and classrooms to give everybody a Betty Luke and flannel graph board. The kids called it their film. We start each morning with a film from the Bible, and it was just a story with a flannel graph like that. One girl, this was years ago now, she was getting ready to go to school, couldn't find her notebook anywhere. So she says, you know, I'm going to do what they say to do at school. I'll get on my knees and I'll pray in the name of Jesus. She gets down in the middle of the the floor in her room and she begins to pray to find her notebook to go to school on time. And her dad comes in, a Muslim man, and finds her kneeling and praying like this. He goes ballistic. He, he, he's he's furious, furious at his daughter, at his wife. I'm not sure how, but like it's always the wife's fault. I think we all conclude that already. And he comes to the school, and he, and he comes into the office, and he's all upset. And he's almost starting to get a little bit violent. And he, he tries to go to the governor and the chief of the police and, and all the different things he can do to try to create legal problems for us. But it all came down to, and the daughter did this, Dad, I found my notebook. Look. I found my notebook because I prayed. And in that culture, the fact that it work, worked totally let all the air out of his tires in trying to find ways to close us down for using the Bible in prayer every day in school. Because we registered as a Christian school. And, and about once a year, it seems like we have a parent at one of our schools who says, I'm so mad about all this Bible stuff at your school, I'm going to withdraw my kid from school. And we say, okay, but we're only going to hold your kid's spot for a week. And after that, we're going to give it to somebody else. I've got one school that turns away 200 students a year because there's no more space. But you know what? If that student leaves on a Friday, the mom brings the student back on a Monday, and they beg us, please let our student have the spot back in your school. Our very first school started, and a team came from Valentine. You all know where that's at. They did the first phase of construction with us, and and we did uh, advertisements all over town, trying to pump up enrollment and get as many people as possible to bring their kids. Do you know how many children enrolled in that school when it first started? Eight. I never put that in a newsletter. All of this travel, all of this giving, all of this building, all of this hard work, two years of planning, months of construction and, and publicity in town and everything, Eight students. And the pressure was so great on the parents who did enroll their kids from the other Muslim neighbors. One mom came and withdrew her twins after like a month or two. And enrollment plummeted from eight kids down to six. Every day I drove up to that school and I parked and I went inside my little office in there. And I thought to myself, this might be the biggest debacle in the history of Assemblies of God missions. Then God 
did what only God can do. Our twins used to go and play tennis. There's not much in our town, but there's a local tennis court. And there was a man that worked there, kind of, and his name was Zal, a Muslim man. And if you saw Zal, you wouldn't think he was very good at tennis because the left side of his body was almost paralyzed. He couldn't move his left leg or his left arm very well. He did all of his tennis playing with his right hand. But he seemed to always know where you were going to hit it, and I think he could destroy anybody I've ever seen play tennis. So a couple times a week, I took the twins there, and they were just small, and they would hit the ball around at their friends all. And one Saturday morning, the kids are there playing tennis, and somebody walks up to me, and they say, hey, did you hear what happened to Zal and his family? They couldn't afford to pay rent, and so they were basically squatting in this really old abandoned building that collapsed in the night. Everybody made it out from the building except for one person, Zal's daughter, who was about eight or nine years old. And when they found her under the rubble, she was like paralyzed. She was unconscious. She couldn't move or feel. She didn't respond to anything. This was a few days beforehand. They, they were keeping her at the very simple clinic in our town, waiting for her to wake up to send her down to the main hospital four hours away in the capital. So I went to Zal after we played tennis with our kids that Saturday afternoon. I said, Zal, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, all the Christians in town, and again, this is a totally common thing, the more I tell stories about what God's doing in Senegal, I tell the Muslim on Saturday, tomorrow morning we're going to pray at 10 o'clock because that's when our church service starts at 10 in the morning. The next day at 10 o'clock, I explain the situation about Saul's daughter. They're waiting for her to wake up. And we pray, and we have service, and go home. The next day, Saturday, I'm sitting in my truck, stuck in traffic, and I've got the windows rolled down about two inches on either side. And from nowhere, this long, skinny arm comes in the open window, unlocks my door from the outside, and then opens the door. Now, normally, this would, like, send you into either fight or flight mode, or you'd look for some way to defend yourself or something. And it was all the tennis guy. And I remember his eyes were big as saucers and his hands even shook as he spoke. And he said, I was standing next to my daughter. She was unconscious at the hospital yesterday, Sunday morning. And she just woke up. She started to move around. She got up. She could talk. She wanted to eat and drink. And they didn't even send her down to the main hospital in Dakar. And then he said, I remembered what you told me Saturday, that you all pray at church at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. He said, as soon as I saw her wake up, I looked at the clock, and it was like 10.07 or 10.08 or something like that. I said, that's right. Now, I was stuck in traffic there, and I only had a couple of minutes to unload as much of the gospel as I could before everybody behind me started to honk. But several, even dozens of occasions on Saturday morning, some, a few times I ran into him in the, in, in the street, and we had time to talk. And, and always I would explain about God's love for us that comes wrapped in his power. And every time he says something like this, my grandfather was a Muslim, my dad's a Muslim, I'm a Muslim, we're a Muslim family, but Jesus is the best. As you know, as God worked it out, Zal was a total blabbermouth. He went all over town back when this happened, back when our school only had six kids enrolled. And he told everybody what happened. Hey, that school must not be all bad. Look what happened. Look what happened to my daughter. And people began showing up all the time. Or in the case of the guy with the stolen car, called me and said, my car, my car was just stolen. 
all the time with medical problems, spiritual problems, family problems. In fact, there's a team of three people at that particular school that's basically a continual prayer for all the different kinds of needs that Muslims come and ask for. All of our plans, all of our ambitions, all the things we set out to do, it never really amounts to anything until God does what only he can do. It's not about us and our plans and what we do. It's just about making a space for God to be God, for God to do what only he can do. Open your Bibles. In fact, I'm not going to identify the book I'm going to speak from just yet. I want you guys to know where this sermon today came from. I was in line in Omaha just a couple days ago, and about two people ahead of me was the roughest, toughest, Harley Davidson-looking guy you ever saw in your life. And his sleeves were cut off of his shirt, and he had tattoos all up his arm, and he had a cross on his shoulder, and the caption around the cross read, Only God can judge me. And I thought, his name must be Daniel. Because that's actually a way to translate Daniel. Only God is judge or God alone is my judge or something like that. So I thought, he knows what his name means and he put that on his tattoo. So after a minute, I just say, Daniel, to see if he responds. No response. I don't know. Maybe that tattoo is completely void of any theological content. I don't know. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. God speaks to us in mysterious ways. <laughs> but it got me thinking about the life story of Daniel. Not just the book of Daniel, but the whole life experience of Daniel. He was a boy, probably a teenage boy. The Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem. They take Judah captive. And when they destroy Jerusalem, they cart off most of the holy objects in the temple. Remember the temple there? All the instructions about how exactly to make everything and all the rules about who can even be around it or touch it and all the rules that went along with the, whole, the, the, the different parts of the temple and, and, and the regulations and the holy objects and everything all covered in gold and all of this stuff from the Old Testament. The Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem They march into the temple like they own the place, and they cart off the the holy objects. They cart off the things that were there that were part of the worship ordained by God for the Israelites. And then they circle up probably about 75 teenage boys from noble families, and they take them back to Babylon as well. This was actually kind of a common thing back then when one country conquered another. They steal the religious symbols, steal anything valuable, and then take like 50 or 100 young men and kind of use them as sort of your go-betweens or use them to help rule over the people that you just conquered. So here's Daniel in a foreign place in a new country. Everything he's just seen would tell him if God is out there, if Yahweh is real, if Father Abraham really was a man saved by faith, if 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 the, the Old Testament and Moses and the temple and, and, and everything he knows to be true about God is real, how did this just happen? 
Babylonian Gentiles just took over Jerusalem and did this to the temple. What of the promised land? What of God's covenant with Abraham? What of the law of Moses? Maybe it was a joke. Maybe they were mistaken. Maybe they sinned in some way and that permanently derailed some vast eternal plan God would have had for Israel. Everything going on around Daniel would have said to him, if his God's out there, he's small or he's too distant to do anything. The Babylonians have all the momentum. The Babylonian gods, the Babylonian wisdom and charlatan and magicians, all of that, maybe that's where Daniel should put his faith. We all know the story of Daniel. He refused the food that the king offered. Daniel and three of his friends. This was actually putting his life on the line. This was a step of faith on Daniel and his friends' part. But God gave them grace. God gave them favor. Then after that, years later, different king now, probably a son or a grandson of the first king, they make this rule because they want to get even with Daniel because the king seems to like Daniel more than everyone else. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's a VeggieTales song now that I said that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) They make up this harebrained plan. You're only allowed to pray to the king. Of course, Daniel goes right back to how he's always prayed every day facing Jerusalem, praying to the God of Abraham and the God of me. And even in that risky time, God is still with Daniel. God doesn't ever turn his back on us. There's no bad news. There's no bad prognosis from your doctor. There's no painful life experience. There's no addiction. There's no problem. There's no remote corner of this world dominated by false religion where God hasn't already won the victory. God doesn't need our puny human efforts to win or to win faster or to win by more. He just calls us to participate in the victory he's already won. That's how Daniel is able to stand up against the flow, stand up against the pressure to maintain the diet according to the dietary rules from the law of Israel, from the law of Moses. That's how Daniel is able to still pray to God. The God of Israel, even though now it's against the law, it means capital punishment. But we all know what happens. The king throws Daniel in the lion's den. The lions seem to not be hungry that day. Daniel suffers no harm. And here's the part I want to read. Daniel chapter 6, starting at verse 25. And this is a man who from what we may know about ancient religion at the time, was basically considered the personification of the God of wisdom. And him and his ancestors are intimately tied into the religion in their kingdom. And he's just passed a rule that you can't pray to the God of Israel or you'll be put to death for a certain number of days. And then here's the letter he sends out to the kingdom after Daniel survives. I love this letter. 
Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All that Daniel had been through. All the opportunities he had to give up. Where in the flesh, human wisdom would have said, you've lost. There's no going back now. Israel's been humiliated. The temple's basically gone Daniel said, not for me, it's not. Even surrounded in a different place by a different religion, sometimes under threat of death, Daniel maintained his faith. One thing about the Islamic world that is very different from here is the noise of the mosque. And it's supposed to be just a call to prayer from that tower they call the minaret that's part of the mosque, Five times a day, they call people in to pray at the mosque. Mosques in a lot of the world, and Senegal is definitely one of these places, it could be hours of mosque noise, of singing and chanting all through these loudspeakers, because the noise is meant to make Islam just continually on your mind, so that you're always hearing these chants, you're always hearing these passages sung, you're always hearing these prayers chanted and these calls to prayer, everything about it designed to almost dominate your mentality and draw you in. I don't know how many times I've been in prayer and I hear all of this noise going on from the corner. And I think I could be the only person praying right now in the name of Jesus. And how many times I think back to Daniel, where it's actually against the law for that month to pray to the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, and he does it anyway. And I'm sure he knew he's like probably the only person doing this. It doesn't matter how many other people are praying if their prayers aren't going anywhere. It only matters what you're doing, what you're doing on your knees. We had this cell group we used to do, and at first it was just a handful of people, and then it grew to a few more people, and then, again, people were coming for prayer, and they saw things happen, and eventually this, this cell group at this person's house filled up and even kind of started to spill out of the main part of the house a little bit. And there were like sometimes 25 and 30 people there. And our singing at first wasn't that noticeable. And then we got louder and there were more people there and the singing got more noticeable to the people around. One night I showed up and they had put these, the Muslims had put these speakers across the street and they were blasting passages being sung from the Quran directly into this house, like from two different sides. And I mean, you could not hear yourself think inside there. And we met and we had our, our, our cell group and our time of prayer and our Bible study. We even tried to sing together. And everybody said, they're doing that on purpose. They're doing that on purpose. But you know what? 
It doesn't matter. Numbers don't matter. There's only one true God. There's only one real God. I had a service in Iowa a while ago, and as soon as I walked in the door, there was somebody waiting there to ambush me. He said, oh, Brother Davis, I've been looking forward to having you come speak at our church. My daughter, she kind of walked away from her faith, and she married a Muslim man. He's a good guy. We like him and everything, but, but, he, but he's a practicing Muslim. And he went on to ask me what question or what, what, how, how to approach him in some way and present him with some kind of philosophical impasse or problem where it could only result in his son-in-law giving up Islam and becoming a Christian. He said, tell me what the silver bullet is. What do I put out there where this is what's going to happen to my son-in-law? I understand the desire on his part, but you know what? I said, there's no such argument. There's no silver bullet. There's, there's, there, you know, there, there's books written and things you guys can talk about and stuff. You know what? I said, be the best friend you possibly can. Be the best friend you possibly can. And you know, as far as the problem or the impasse or, or, or whatever it is that's going to make him become a Christian, you don't have to cook that up. You don't have to find that and present it to him. Life itself will give him that problem. At some point, life itself will give him an impasse or a problem or a disaster or something he can't deal with himself, and he knows he's got no way to deal with it. I've seen more Muslims come to the faith because of that. And when they come and ask for prayer from somebody they know and trust, that does far, far more than any kind of argument or any kind of, 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 of way of, of arguing with Muslims or anyone else for that matter. The other day I was listening on the radio, and I think it was uh, uh, Charles Stanley, if I'm not mistaken, or uh, Swindoll, rather. And he was talking about somebody complaining and bemoaning the fact that they're the only Christian who works at this big company where they work at. And, he, and, 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 and Pastor, uh, sorry, Charles Swindoll said to him, you're the only Christian. There's no one else there besides you in that whole place that's a Christian. And he said, no, I am it. I am the only Christian in this entire place. And Swindoll looked at him and said, you mean God entrusted that entire operation to you alone? That's a big mission. That's a big responsibility. It's not, a, it's, it's not defeat. It's not a problem. It could be a tougher environment to work at. But then you know where God has called you if you're the only Christian there. Back to my passage from Daniel. All that happens, all that the kings do to try and squelch different religions or to dominate different cultures and different religions of the places that they, call, that they capture and that they dominate, he sends out that letter that we read to his kingdom. He basically tells everybody, the God of Daniel is it. The God of Israel, that's where you should believe. And what made that happen? Every time I look at that, I think of the Muslims I've seen who say something like, Jesus is the best. Or they come to me and they say something like, I want to change my name. That in that place means I want to convert. They think they have to change their name from Muhammad to something like Christopher or 
John or, or Peter or something like that. I say, don't change your name. You don't need to change your name when you become a Christian. Just ask Pastor Al-Hajj. Yes, Pastor Al-Hajj is a real person. <laughs> and he'll tell you you don't have to change your name. It's all about real life change. Working in a Muslim country, being the only Christian in our town for so many years, I got to see it in a different way. I got to understand it in a different way. And you know, it's not reserved for different parts of the world where different religions dominate. That lifestyle, that vision, that mission that we have, it's just as real right here in Crawford or Shadron or Scott's Bluff. You don't have to go to some other continent or some other place to serve God or to be the kind of Christian that God is calling us and equipping us to be. All we have to do is make the space for God to do what only he can do. Always one of my favorite parts about the story of John the Baptist. He was so clear on that point. I can't do anything. I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm just preparing the way. Prepare the way. Create the situation where God takes action. What situation are you creating at your place of employment? What situation are you creating for God to work in at your school? Maybe even right under your own roof if you lived with unsaved loved ones. Make that place for God to be God. That's all we do. That's all we have to do. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for all they've done. I thank you for the ways they've advanced the gospel. Lord Jesus, I pray for you to bless each person here today with the knowledge that they are your emissary. They are sent by you to their own personal field. Lord Jesus, give each one of us that vision and that understanding, Lord. God, continue to work in our lives, work in the hearts and minds of those around us, even people where we least expect it. Even as people might be totally hardened to you right now, God, like the king of Babylon was until he sees something different in somebody he knows. God, may we be like that Daniel, committed to you even when it looks like it's a futile effort, committed to you even when our culture is dominated by non-Christian ways of thinking and doing things. Lord Jesus, may we be different from the world so we can be used by you to make a difference. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Can I tell one last story? I totally meant to say this a couple minutes ago. The well that you guys paid for those years ago, Pastor El Hodge is the pastor in that town, and it's right next to the school. And the school we built in the absolute most remote part of Senegal on land that was given to us by the local government. And the reason the local government gave us that land is because somebody in the government used to be in the English class taught by my wife. And so when we went there, he signed the papers, filed everything he had to file for the government to give us land. And again, remember, years ago, they used to absolutely argue against us and do all that they could to keep us from starting a school. That's why we're up to 14 schools today, 14 schools that started from that one school of six kids. You guys contributed to dig the well for that school because there was no other way to get water there. We had to have that well for construction, to make the concrete, to make the cement, not just to have there for the school once the school started. And I mean caravans of camels have come and used that well. Shepherds come and draw water there. All manner of livestock, I'm sure animals are drinking from that even as I speak. 
where we put it next to the school. Everybody knows where the school is because the herdsmen all know where the water sources are. And while they were, dig- while they were digging the well, three young men were there and they took turns. And they dug down, oh man, probably like 70 or 80 feet, I believe. They dug down three-guy job. They dig down about a meter. They put a concrete sleeve. Dig down another meter. And this is how they've worked their way down. And it, it's not exactly straight down. It's got a bit of a bow. I mean, you stand and look down that thinking, man, I would go down there for all the money in the world when I look at down there. <laughs> Pastor Al Hodge was there, and he talked with those guys that dug every day. And again, Pastor Al Hodge, having left Islam and come to Christianity, he knows how to explain, he knows how to approach, he knows how to say, here's the questions I had, but here's how God answers. By the time they got done digging that well, and this took a few weeks to dig the well, one of the guys that dug the well actually got saved. And he lost his job digging a well. So he started baking bread and selling bread in the market. And in the market, everybody said, wait a minute, we know you used to dig wells, then you got fired for digging wells because you became another religion, and we're not going to buy your bread anymore. So he moved down the road to the next village and sold bread in that market and bounced around, finally with the help of the local church, got on his feet. It is doing very well today. His name is Muhammad. And he was one of the ones that came to me and said, I want to change my name, Pastor Davis. I said, don't change your name. You could stay Muhammad. I just want you guys to know the part you had in doing that. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Just stay here for a second because we're going to pray for you. But I just want to say thank you. Um, I don't know. Brian's testimony several years ago when you shared about your endurance was something that helped compel me to continue to pastor in Crawford, Nebraska at times. Your testimony has spoken life to me. Your testimony has been a, a ministry in my life. And I value missionaries who say, I will because God said so. And this guy isn't just saying this. He's living it. He's truth. His, his testimony is real. And only God can do. <laughs> and so I value you and I say thank you from the bottom of my heart as a pastor who I love hearing the testimonies of the well, what God did. Again, we talk about impacting our world. Crawford, Nebraska made a fingerprint in Senegal, Africa because of the kingdom of God that we're a part of. We're going to pray for you, Brian. If you can stand up here, if some of a body can come on and lay hands on, on Brian, we're going to pray for our missionary. Step forward so they can kind of come behind you, too. Thank you. You guys can go ahead and lay your hands on him. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the testimonies of what you've accomplished. We thank you, God, for love with power. For prayers that are answered, God, for lives that have been transformed. 
Because we say, God, do what you need to do. So we pray for Brian and Laura. We pray for their family, Lord, for everything that they set their hands to, the power and presence of God. We pray for the schools in in Senegal. God, continued fruit in Jesus' name. God, we pray for Muhammad's to be called children of God. We pray, Father, for, for every need they may have, every, every obstacle that may be before them, the power and presence of God that, that transforms. We ask God for continued favor, for continued fruit, for a continued harvest, Lord, that only you understand. God, your blessings go before him and come behind him. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I say the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, may he turn his face towards you and grant you his peace.